Thank you, Bonnie. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Seth Dews. I think I've met most of you before, but if not, uh, I'm an ordained pastor in the PCA and also a chaplain at Randolph Air Force Base. And thank you for allowing me to preach before you this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 31. It's also on the screen behind me. And as you are turning there, let's stand together and rejoice and give thanks that God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word has been easily placed in our sinful hands today. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Friends, this is God's word. It's without error in any part. It is for his glory and for our good. You may be seated. Well, before we look at God's word together, let's pray together and ask for the teaching and the receiving of his holy word. Let's pray. Our God of heaven and earth, again, great is your faithfulness. And morning by morning, new mercies we see. And sometimes we fail to acknowledge those mercies. Sometimes we don't realize those mercies that you have given us that you constantly provide. And so, Father, help us to believe in these promises this morning from your word and the gospel of Mark, and may our hearts be convicted this morning, convicted by how foolish we can be at times, convincing ourselves and one another that we can save ourselves. But instead, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to thy cross we cling. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Well, friends, it's good to be with you again. The last time I was privileged to preach before you was back in December, the, the week before Christmas. Thank you, Session. Thank you, Clay and Eric, for, for letting me share Derek's pulpit with you this morning. Pastor Derek has been leading us through the Gospel of Mark, the shortest yet one of the richest Gospels of the New Testament. And today we have the joy of covering verses 17 through 31, where many of our Bibles have the heading, the rich young ruler or the rich young man. Now, a lot has happened in Mark so far, as Jesus is teaching us in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Jesus and his followers have been on the road for quite some time. If you still have your Bibles open, I want you to go back to chapter 8. So just flip back a few chapters. Go back to chapter 8, and there I want you to look at verse 27. In verse 27, it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now kind of put your finger there, and let's go back to chapter 10. Go back to chapter 10. Now I want you to look at verse 46. In verse 46, it says, And they came to Jericho. So in verse 27 of chapter 8, now all the way to verse 46 of chapter 10, they have traveled almost 120 miles on foot, Jesus and his disciples. Now, we don't know how long this took them, but I want you to pay special attention to that and keep that in mind because Jesus willingly walked to Jerusalem knowing that this was the city that would kill him. Now, also go to chapter 11. If you look in chapter 11, look at verse 1 and 2. Now they are in Bethany. Bethany was only about two miles away from Jerusalem. Along the way, however long this journey took them, we're never really told, Jesus teaches his followers many wonderful things. Twice he teaches them that he will be killed and that he will rise on the third day. The third time, I want you to go to verse 32 of chapter 10. That's the third time that he tells his disciples that he will be killed and rise from the grave. But they still don't quite understand what he is saying. He's also been transfigured before them. If you go to the beginning of chapter 9, he heals a little boy who's demon-possessed. He has also taught on divorce and remarriage and children and all these things that inhabit the kingdom of God. But now in our passage today, he's talking about material possessions. Ah, yes, we we love our stuff, don't we? Our material possessions. And the question that we have to ask this morning is, what should our attitude be toward our earthly possessions? What do we find to be the most valuable thing in life? As, As the father of two little girls, if I were to ask them, if I were to sit them down and say, What holds the most value in your life right now? Now, of course, as a Presbyterian and being Reformed and through sanctification, we want them to say Jesus, but most likely they would say candy. Candy for a little kid, candy is life. That is the most valuable thing. They don't know about money yet, so candy is the most valuable thing. But for us this morning and in Mark chapter 10, what is the most valuable thing in our life right now. You know, Jesus has just finished this lesson, if you look in verses 13 through 16, about children coming into the kingdom of God. But now let's pick up in verse 17. In verse 17, they're about to head back on the road when suddenly they are interrupted. Look at verse 17 again. It it says, a man ran up 
and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice here in Mark's account, Mark doesn't tell us that the man is young. Matthew and Luke's account, they say that this man is young. They also call him a ruler. What's interesting about verse 17 is kind of what we aren't told. You know, in verse 17, we were never given a name. We don't know where this man is from. We don't really know what he does for a living. If Luke's account calls him a ruler, maybe he was a a governor or or a mayor of a smaller town or village. We, We just don't know. Maybe he had some employees that worked for him. But he seems to know that Jesus is the teacher because notice how teacher is capitalized in our Bibles this morning. And also notice how he says, good teacher. So he seems to at least acknowledge Jesus' character and authority by calling him good teacher. And here's where I think Jesus' reply in verses 18 and 19, it kind of takes us by surprise. You know, if you're like me, if you're looking at verses 17 through 22, And and listen very carefully when I say this. Jesus, he doesn't seem to be a very good evangelist, does he? In verses 18 through 22. I mean, this is is the son of God. This This is the guy who's supposed to be walking up and down the streets every direction and people are falling over and he's winning souls and he's taking names for God's glory. And now here it, he doesn't really seem to be that excited. The, the summer that I, I graduated high school, our youth group went on a mission trip to Ireland. And our job as our, as our youth group was to witness and to evangelize to local foster and orphaned children that were in Northern Ireland in a town called Ballymena. And months before we went, every week we had to meet at the church and we had to go through evangelism explosion training. Anybody ever done evangelism explosion? It's very popular in the 70s, 90s, early 2000s. It was founded by the late Presbyterian pastor James Kennedy. And every week about 10 of us high schoolers, we met in this large room and we practiced all sorts of different evangelism styles and techniques and the trainers who were elders in our church, they would watch us very closely and interact and even kind of program us to say certain things and have certain reactions so we could segue into the next part of the training. And the program, it was, it was very effective Even for me, as I had the chance to lead my first person to Christ, Paul, a a 10-year-old boy, he accepted Christ, and afterwards I sobbed like a little girl and deeply freaked him out. But I count that as a win. I count that as a win. But but we have to ask the question, okay, how would we grade Jesus' evangelism style here? If If you had to give it a letter grade. How would we grade his evangelism style? I want you to go back to verses 18 and 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. So let's say that 
that Hope Presbyterian has just hired the best evangelist and street missionary that there ever is, and this is his technique. I do not think that Jesus would do very well in evangelism explosion training. And Jesus, notice how he's saying, he's, why are you calling me good? Why are you saying that? Why do you, how do you know that? Are you calling me good just because I'm a man and you're a man and you think that you're good based off of what you've done? And you can imagine this, this man, he's, he's probably thinking, well, I didn't really see that one coming. I didn't really think that he would respond that way. And Jesus is saying, I can only be called good because I am God in human flesh. But if I were a sinful man just like you, I can't call myself good, and you can't call yourself good. And so look in verse 19, Jesus, he lists five of the last six Ten Commandments. These are ones that deal specifically with how we relate to each other. So these are the horizontal commandments. And again, here's where his evangelistic method and exchange, it's kind of bizarre. Because look in verse 20, the ruler replies, well, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. Oh, well, par- pardon me. And what, you know, what was I thinking? You've kept all of these from your youth? Wow, can I have your autograph? You've kept all of these? Now, what is Romans 3? And what is Romans 8? teach us that's quite contrary to his words. It says that all have fallen short, that no one is righteous, no one seeks good on their own. Romans 8 verse 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so look at how Jesus responds and look in verse 21. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. So two things that I want us to notice about Jesus' response here in verse 21. The first is that Jesus loves this man unconditionally, doesn't he? He loves this man unconditionally. You know, notice how he's not annoyed. He's not frustrated. He's not judgmental. He, he doesn't call him a hypocrite or a sinner. Instead, his response is love, and what he tells him is out of love. But I would say this is tough love. We often use that phrase, this is tough love. And he knows that this man is coveting because of his wealth, but he doesn't label him as being hopeless or insignificant. But the second thing that I want us to notice about Jesus' words here is that this challenge given by Jesus is meant to be taken cautiously. This challenge given by Jesus is meant to be taken cautiously. Jesus knows that this man is capable of doing everything that he says. Go out and get rid of all your stuff, get rid of everything. He knows that if that man did this, he would be completely fine because everything has been given to him in his life. He has never been really in need of something. But Jesus is not telling us to go out right this instance and to sell everything that we have, to get rid of our house and our cars and to live in cardboard boxes and to hope that everything works out. 
You see, many take this verse and this commandment out of context. They think that, oh, well, we're supposed to hate money and we're supposed to hate commodities and life and everything that we have and we're supposed to be poor. Jesus is not giving this liberal kind of wealth and money or bad speech. But what he is saying is that those things shouldn't define us. You know, David Platt in his book Radical from 2010, he he suggested that many people should go out and, and do this very thing. Sell everything that you have. Don't worry about paying bills. Live in cardboard boxes and everything will be fine. Okay, well, if I have a family, if I have three children, first I've got to convince my wife Roberta to do this. And then as we're living in cardboard boxes, I've got to convince my children. Yes, it's a great idea, isn't it? That's not what the Bible is saying. We can't be too extreme and too legalistic here. Instead, Jesus knows that this man is relying on his own, his own self-righteousness, his own possessions to inherit eternal life. What was the very first thing he said? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? You see, eternal life is not something that you and I can purchase. It's not something that we can go to Costco and find on the shelf and we think, oh, great, it's on sale and it's in bulk. I don't have to worry about anything else. It's not about following ourselves. It's not about relying on ourselves because look at the end of verse 21. What does Jesus say? He says, follow me. Follow me. And then look at verse 22. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, again, I, I really think if, if Jesus had been in an evangelism explosion training right here, my, my trainers back in high school would say, all right, whoa, 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 wait a minute. All right, Jesus, wow, that was, that was awful. Um, let, let's try this again. So let's call him back. You know, it, it kind of started off poor, and it got a little better, but then it, it really ended very poorly. Let, let's, let's bring him on back, and let's, let's start over, and let's try again. You see, what's so hard about verse 22, and even up to the end of our passage in verse 31, is we still don't know if this man ever came back. You know, will we see this man in heaven? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I would hope, you know, we're rooting for this young man. I, I would have hoped that because of this exchange, that some point later in the course of his life, the Holy Spirit convicted him. He thought, yeah, I remember Jesus talking about this. But we just don't know. You know, the end of verse 22 it's saying that if, if we today, if we only trust in our possessions and what we find to be the most valuable thing, if it's not Christ, then Christianity is not for you. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments, if you're trusting in something more than Christ, then the Lord's Supper is not for you because you don't need it. And that's what Jesus is telling this man 
He said, hey, you've got everything. Oh, and you followed all those commandments perfectly? Well, then you don't need me. You don't need me. Who or what are we putting value in? Some of us here this morning might be putting more value in our possessions than we are Christ. My, uh, My aunt and uncle were missionaries in Latvia for many years, and the summer that they moved back from Latvia to the States, all of their stuff was put in one large shipping container. And from Latvia all the way back to Tennessee, the, the container had to go on multiple ships across all these different oceans to get back to, to Tennessee, and somehow, somehow the container got lost. And they had everything in this container. And I, re- I remember when they got back, they, they literally, they had one suitcase for the whole family. That was all they had. And I, I remember some other family members being so shocked and angry and, and saddened for them. And they'd say, how could they, how could they lose all of your stuff? And I'll never forget what my aunt said. I was, I was a teenager at the time. And she said, it's just stuff. We'll be all right. It's just stuff. We'll be all right. Make a great T-shirt or something, wouldn't it? It's just stuff. And, and still, there were some members of my family that were, they couldn't wrap their brains around, well, how can you be so chill about this? And I remember my mother, she looked at my aunt and she said, well, what about all of your children's baby pictures and their toys and their clothes and all these memories and scrapbooks and everything that you have? And again, my aunt said, yeah, true, but it's just stuff. I have my children. You see, the same applies for eternity. We're, we're all excited to see certain relatives and, and friends. You know, people have even told me as a pastor and as a chaplain, you know, if, if my Uncle Jim or my Aunt Sally, if they're not in eternity, then I don't want to go. That's not the point. The point is that we should be excited to meet Christ, the one who makes eternity possible. We can be excited to see relatives, but the main person we should be excited to see is Jesus. And this, this leads to, you know, another question, I think. If, if you look at the end of verse 22, if you're like me, I ask the question, well, well, why didn't Jesus call him back? Why didn't Jesus call him back? Did something stop him? It's not the apostles, it's not the disciples. If you look in verse 23, they're just as shocked as anybody else. Why didn't he call them back? You know, maybe he could sense that this man wasn't going to repent anytime soon. Maybe he could sense that this man wasn't going to be convicted in this moment. If the man had everything already, then why should Jesus call him back? He seems to be completely fine without him. And what does that tell us about our own evangelistic methods? You know, sometimes we, we spend so much energy and so much time on, on people that we really want to be saved, and deep down they aren't interested at all. And at the end of the day, we have to trust that it's up to the Holy Spirit to convict their hearts. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we sit back and we become the frozen chosen and never try. We still try, 
We still want God to use us as His vessels and as His witnesses for His kingdom. But look in verse 23. You know, I get the feeling that many who witness this, they're shocked about this exchange. And Jesus, in verses 23 through 25, He tells them how difficult it will be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So much so, look at verse 25, it's like a camel going through the point of a needle. And what are you going to say to that? You can't argue with that one. And so look at verse 26, it says, and they were exceedingly astonished. So, oh yeah, we got nothing to say about that one. But they're still confused. Look at verse 26, it says, well then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And I love Jesus' reply because he helps them to remove the veil, to remove the fog that's blinding them and it's causing so much pride and so much arrogance. Look at verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Don't you love how Jesus just kind of smacks them in the face with this cold, hard truth and reality that, again, it's not up to you. That all have fallen short. No one is righteous. No one does good on his own. And friends, do we really believe this? Because I struggle with this at times in my own life. There, There have been plenty of times in my life where I think, I don't need to consult God on this one. I've got it figured out. I don't need to look to him this time. But when I really need him, that's when I'll call out on him. But until then, I don't need to seek counsel or wisdom or advice from God or his word. Do we believe that if we always rely on man, that there are many aspects in our life that will be impossible? But instead, if we rely on God, all things are possible. Didn't the angel Gabriel say that to Mary in Luke chapter 1? Didn't he tell her that she would be the mother of Jesus and that her aunt Elizabeth would be the mother of John the Baptist even in her old age? And as soon as he revealed this news to her, what did he say? He said, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. And you know, you would think that after hearing these words that the apostles, the disciples, his followers, that everyone would be convinced And they wouldn't need any more undue credit. But good old Peter, right? Good old Peter. He's always the first one to speak up in the Gospels. Look at what he says in verse 28. He said, yeah, yeah, Jesus, but, but we have left everything and followed you. It's kind of like Jesus needs that emoji where there's the hand on the forehead, you know. Just... Really? Peter, come on, man, give me a break here. (laughs) Peter is thinking, oh, you know, we're not not so bad. We, We left everything, right? And again, Jesus replies, look in verse 29 and 30, he says that no one has ever truly left everything behind. For what? For the sake of the gospel. No one has ever done that. No one. And he makes this key point, look in verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. 
So the question again is who or what are we trusting in this morning? What is the most valuable thing in our life today? And, you know, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, it's God. I, I get it. You've made your point. Well, my next question is, okay, well, how can you improve? How can we all improve? How can we do better? How can we show people that we are trusting in Christ and not in ourselves? I want you to listen to what Paul says from Colossians 1. When many things in life will seem impossible, but if we're trusting in God, he makes it possible. Colossians 1, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled on his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's not because of us, friends, but because God makes it possible. Hymnist Joseph Gilmore from 1862, he writes, He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught, Whatever I do, wherever I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me. He leadeth me by his own hand. He leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be. For by his hand he leadeth me. Friends, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, how great your grace and your mercy and your love is for us today as we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate in the Lord's Supper soon. We ask that you will put the idols of our hearts aside and not only put them aside, but bring them before you so that they can be destroyed. Help us to never take for granted how you have given us the wonderful and everlasting free gift of eternal life. And thank you that in order for us to obtain salvation, that it's not up to us but solely on you. For nothing in our hands we bring, simply to thy cross we cling. In the name of Jesus we pray without fear and without delay. Amen.